We just got back from Toronto's beautiful Scotiabank Theatre. We both wanted to see a movie again this week because we, we love did, movies. We, lo- we love movies. <laughs> big screen, big sound. Love it. There wasn't a candidate playing this week that was quite as, as ripe for treatment. Uh, as Oh, I disagree. Well, <laughs> s- seemingly, seemingly but there all wasn't. It's not what it seemed. But yesterday when Luke and I were, were having, you know, a phone call, our, our, our business call to discuss. We we weren't having a phone call. We were in the boardroom. That's you right. know, there were whiteboards populated with the fruits of hours of brainstorming. There were overworked, overcaffeinated interns looking on in awe as they saw magic being created. Well, I said, Oh, well, there's this one movie that's playing. It's kind of a soy banter Dracula comedy with Nicolas Cage. <laughs> and you said, Yes. <laughs> it was like, fuck yeah. And uh, we'll come to this in a second, but it just so happened that I had had Dracula on the brain, which doesn't happen every week. I'll explain that in a moment. I mean, the master is always on my brain. I'm always <laughs> every night as the clock strikes nine, I'm I'm up doing his bidding. The, the master is literally the Michael and us podcast at this point. We like to do the podcast bidding, but we're also completely chained to it. We, we can't escape it. It's like, would I be subjecting myself to a soy Dracula movie uh, without this podcast? And the answer is a resounding no. But can I just say... <laughs> Even the worst afternoon doing the Michael and Us podcast (laughs) is so much better than the best afternoon doing any other kind of job. I think that's true, but the thesis gets tested, and this was one of those occasions, (laughs) all right? Well, look, before we get into all things Dracula, I mean, I do want to talk a little bit about the theater-going experience, because I do think the energy of a movie theater is part of how you experience a movie, and the theater-going experience is not, you know, it's not a uniform thing. Is the theater crowded? Sometimes that can be good, sometimes that can be bad. You know, what is the theater what does the theater look like? How long do you have to wait for the food? In Will's case, it was uh, it was pretty long, and he he missed the first uh, I don't know I missed the first three minutes the, of the movie. Yeah, and, and yeah, what a, what a lot he missed. You missed the tail end of the previews, which I've already literally forgotten what they were. The theater was uh, pretty Spartan. There, I mean, there was maybe like two other people in the theater. This is, this which... is why the food <laughs> took so long to make. I needed lunch. I was very hungry, and the stoves weren't on because yeah. nobody, you know, the fryer wasn't even on. They had to actually kill the chicken you know and, and <laughs> that's and right fuck the feathers to make the chicken burger yeah god why the fuck would you have a chicken burger anyway i wanted to get something but uh i love i love chicken burgers fine we can have that thrilling conversation off mike i wanted to get something from the concession stand i thought you know i'm kind of hungry i need a chocolate bar to tide me over and there's no like real food to be found and then yeah you can't get anything at the theater that isn't like monster size so i just went without you know i was like if i have a giant bag of sour cherry blasters i'm gonna eat the giant bag of sour cherry blasters and what's the deal with the price of popcorn yeah yeah they (laughs) they tell you to clean after yourself but then they make you spend so much money on popcorn you're right this is not very interesting there was one other detail that i thought was funny though which you noticed on the way over when we walked past the black widow themed like was it a garbage bin or popcorn dispenser yes it was a garbage bin but it was actually a popcorn bowl yeah you can two-year-old movie if you can go to the scotia bank you can still get some black widow merch it's uh it's flying off the shelves god anyway so (laughs) right that was the movie going experience we're gonna get to the movie which was 
Well, <laughs> uh, but I, as I said, I have a Dracula on the brain. And uh, the reason is that in my kind of, uh, I don't know, at this point, pretty much weekly survey of uh, various conservative media outlets, I just like to see what they're doing. I like to see what conservatives are thinking. And I especially like to see what the sort of like would be sophisticate ones are thinking. So, you know, I'm not going to the Daily Wire. I'm going to National Review. I'm going to the Federalist. I'm going to the American Conservative. And when I saw that there was an article at the American Conservative in their culture section called Learning from Vlad the Impaler, the American people need a champion who is willing to be the bad guy. I mean, look, I mean, this look, is the, I had to click. This is the thing about cancel culture. It's like we reduce everyone to just the worst thing they've ever done. And I, Vlad the Impaler had a lot of good ideas. Yeah. And what's amazing about this style of conservative writing and what always fascinates me about it is in many ways, the concerns are just the same concerns that you find in any kind of right wing media. It's just packaged differently. It's kind of packaged with this. Yeah, this pretense to some kind of sophistication and then yeah the arguments are just like dumb as hell and also quite apart from being dumb they're just weird and you think to yourself like god there's a whole political tendency where there's these guys that sit around in bow ties and they write this and they're completely serious about it and like these are their frames of reference where the media for like the braying masses is you know disney is brainwashing your children and turning them gay the uh, intellectual conservative media is uh, society is built on foundational structures yeah, that that's we right. Must maintain. Yeah, and it's sort of, yeah, and lots of sort of there's a stock of I don't know maybe three or four sort of classical illusions that get made. But it that, ends in the same place. Yeah, you yeah. know, and and th so this article is no different. It's not very long. I I think I'll read most of it. The argument's funny, but it's also just emblematic of, uh, of yeah, this kind of ostensibly sophisticated uh, genre of conservative writing, which, you know, just adds a dollop of chin stroking to the usual reactionary nonsense. It's common to see conservative writers compare today's political and cultural situation to that of the late Roman Republic. Boy, is it ever. It was a time of transition between a small, vigorous republic to a large, decadent empire. Rome was effectively running an oligarchy with wealthy patricians ruling over the massive plebeians and slaves. For most Romans, taxes were oppressive, social mobility was non-existent, and distractions from pointless wars and violent entertainment abounded. Populist movements were periodically put down as Rome steadily inched towards autocracy. With so many constitutional norms being violated today by unaccountable oligarchs to suppress populist movements, it's easy to see the parallels. America's middle and working classes muddle onward, seeing their quality of life decline and opportunities for the better dissolve. They, too, are distracted by violent entertainment and pointless wars. And just as there were leaders such as Tiberius Gracchus and Julius Caesar championing the cause of the people and suffering the enmity of the elites, today Donald Trump does the same and suffers similar scorn. So you, you, you heard it here, folks. Donald Trump is the popularis faction in the late Roman Republic. This analogy poses a question. How can we avoid Rome's demise? God, I'm just, <laughs> I'm going to stop interjecting, but it's the question that's on my mind every day. Do Americans just need to steel themselves for the inevitable crash of the markets, complete dissolution of faith and morals, and rise of a totalitarian autocracy? Or should they fight, perhaps in vain, to restore the country's founding ideals, pray for another great awakening, and somehow find politicians who can both win elections and govern effectively? In light of the fatalism that seems to follow comparisons to Rome, I'd like to propose a different historical analogy that is both more apt and hopeful. Now, this is where we get to the meat of the piece, but I do want to say one thing about this as a historical 
historical, you know, analogy. I think it's kind of weird, and perhaps I'm misunderstanding something here, but I feel like if you're a reactionary today, you're lying on ancient Rome. Like, you look at the late Roman Republic, and you don't like it. And the problem with the late Roman Republic, presumably, is that it, it had become too democratic and degenerate. I don't really understand what he's doing here, because the Roman Empire, for like hundreds of years after the fall of the Republic, I mean, that's when it reached its height under Trajan and Hadrian. And I feel like if guys like this had been around then, they would have been there for it. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. It's stupid. But this is where we get to the fun stuff. After reading Raymond Ibrahim's new book, Defenders of the West, the Christian Heroes Who Stood Against Islam, a real Heather's pick, that one, I believe today's situation more closely mirrors that of 15th century Romania. During this time, Romania and the rest of the Balkan countries were made up of small kingdoms ruled by warlords. The colossal empire of the Ottoman Turks periodically invaded the region, desecrating churches, enslaving thousands, massacring and torturing innocents, and ravaging the countryside. In order to protect their kingdoms, the voivodes, uh, that's the warlords, and boyars, nobles, agreed to pay tribute to the Turkish sultan. This cost them not only gargantuan sums of money, but hundreds of captives became part of the sultan's harem, were used as slave labor, or recruited as janissaries, Christian boys brainwashed and trained to fight as elite soldiers for the Turks. So basically, those guys, the sort of petty lords who are paying tribute to, uh, you know, the Ottoman Turks. The Ottoman Turks are the globalists in this analogy, and I guess the warlords paying tribute to the Sultan are like, uh, you know, that's caving to woke culture or whatever. But but seriously, one Romanian warlord, Vlad Dracula II, was forced to give up his two sons, Vlad III and Radu, as hostages to Sultan Muhammad II for several years. While Radu, who was sexually assaulted and groomed by the Sultan, stayed loyal to the Turks, Vlad III vowed vengeance. And the Turks in this analogy are, are, the, the are, are the, the they're Turks, Disney. The Turks, yeah, they're Disney. They're doing, they did a Pizzagate to, right. to, to Dracula's son. Right. When the latter returned home and inherited the kingdom, he immediately stopped paying tribute and ruled his kingdom in the same style as the Turks, that is, through terror and fear. Because his preferred method of punishment for his enemies was impalement, he soon became known as Vlad the Impaler. Though Vlad obviously upset the Sultan, who eventually sent a massive army against him, he angered the other warlords and boyars even more. Instead of joining Vlad's effort, they betrayed Vlad at every turn, breaking treaties, lying about military commitments, generating propaganda about him drinking blood and being a vampire. <laughs> that's, you know, that's like people gossiping about him on Twitter or whatever. Um, and even imprisoning him for 13 years, he was only released to lead a war against his brother Radu and some invading Turkish armies. For all the abuse and calamity Vlad suffered, he was an effective leader who was adored by his people. He imposed law and order and fought against the enemy. He refused to rob his own people and sell their children to pay off the Turks. He also showed just how much the Turks' power relied on intimidation and duplicity. When someone actually fought back, blah, 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 blah. Perhaps more importantly, he exposed the weakness and hypocrisy of other Christian rulers who only cared about themselves. If one can see past the violence, there are important similarities between Vlad Dracula's situation and America today. So if, if one can see past the violence, it's very important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, folks, forget about the impaling. Let's just, like, like, let's put a pin in that and see that there are lessons to be learned here. Much like the Ottoman Turks dominated their day's politics and culture, leftist globalist elites dominate the politics and culture of today. Much like how the warlords and boyars cave to the demands of the Sultan, almost every institution today complies with the agenda of these elites. And much like the Romanian nobility demonized the populist Dracula at the behest of the Sultan, today's institutions demonize the populist Trump at the behest of the leftist elites.
Now, look, he rings a few more paragraphs out of this. I'm not going to bother. Uh, I'm just going to skip to the end here. So blah, 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 elites, uh, Christians, uh, the Turkish globalists, etc., etc. It ends like this. Therefore, it's essential to learn from history and fight fire with fire. Instead of lamenting the faulty indictments and legal double standards, conservative politicians need to start indicting and investigating prominent Democrats. Like Vlad, they will find that these leftists are not as powerful as they seem. So much of their support depends on intimidation and bluster. If Republicans went on the offensive for once, for they, once. Would, yeah, right, they would discover that despite the odds, this is a battle they could win. More importantly, history teaches why conservatives should fight the battle in the first place for the people. While leftist elites and their stooges will always vilify conservatives for showing a spine, Americans who have families, do real work, and actually love their country will celebrate them and keep their memories alive. They need a champion who will not sell them out, fight the good fight, and do the dirty work of figuratively impaling some bad guys. I actually love hearing, I just love hearing articles like this from the conservative side that sound like, you know, what leftists say about liberals. No, no, no. Right, exactly. I mean, this is literally like liberals in 2016 posting like Khaleesi memes of Hillary Clinton or like after Donald Trump was elected and it's supposedly the most traumatic event they've ever experienced and then they're just earnestly tweeting. But also like why why don't the Democrats grow a spine? Why don't they say what they actually believe? Why don't they get on the offensive? Why don't they say have you no decency sir? Right. You know the article makes some points. I mean we're all the hero of our own story. I'm sure Vlad the Impaler had had reasons for what he did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right. So look, uh, Will and I are absolutely bursting to talk about this movie. Same thing happened uh, as the last two weeks where when we were on our way uh, to the studio to record, we were just like, we, we actually kind of went silent for a bit because it was like, how can we talk about anything uh, that isn't the movie? All I, can't all talk I could about that. see in front of my face was this movie. That's right. It, it felt like it was everywhere. Oh my um, God. So this movie is also about a populist Dracula, but in this movie, the populist Dracula is bad. The great thing about this movie is, further to what you just said, it is literally like, yeah, the soyified version of, you know, the article we've just read. Like, if the article we've just read reflects, like, the Zack Snyder kind of cultural sensibility, this movie is like... This is what happens when a bunch of Pete Buttigieg supporters take control of the means yes. of production. Yes, This is like the MCU meets, you know, I mean, it's it's also, as you pointed out, a piece of John Wick exploitation. Well, like, so <laughs> the, the the Pete Buttigieg... Imagine John Wick, but but yeah, if it was written by people that worked on Pete Buttigieg's campaign. And I, I think the Pete Buttigieg <laughs> analogy is so important, not just for the aesthetics, but for how this movie exists. I mean, this movie screams of being made by a bunch of careerists who had the opportunity to pitch a movie. And there's like... There's no blood in its veins, ironically. There's no soul in its body, ironically. It's just this walking, talking pitch by a bunch of people who are rising in Hollywood. I am Dracula. Renfield. You will make a very good assistant. I work for Dracula. What? You're like the guy that gets the villain's postmates. Let's see. I do other stuff, too. Like what? Wash his cape? No, that's dry clean only. I attend to his needs, especially during daylight hours. You okay? No. Renfield. Is it yummy? Yes. We did our April 14. A little background on how this movie came to be. Uh, Well, I don't know the specifics on how it came to be, but I do know that over the past 20 years, Universal Studios has made a number of failed attempts to build a franchise out of their stable of classic monsters. 
Now, characters like Dracula, Frankenstein, obviously they've been in the public domain for a long time. <laughs> but Universal is a studio that is closely associated with those characters because of their monster movies from the 30s and 40s. Bela Lugosi as Dracula, Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman. I didn't quite know this background, but uh, in the sort of three or four minutes at the beginning of the film that you missed, which is honestly too bad because it's probably the only part of the film that you would have connected with at all. There was a sequence of just a few minutes where the Renfield character was sort of giving the backstory to like, here's how I met Dracula. And it was all done in black and white in the style of, you know, classic 30s and 40s Dracula movies. And so it was kind of a massive callback to those while also being part of the world of the film in a sense because the implication is that you know Renfield's been working for Dracula for a hundred years or something yeah and I believe the implication I believe we are to interpret this movie as kind of a long gap sequel to that 1931 Dracula but Universal has made a number of attempts to uh, sort of reconnect with its heritage of monster movies and build a franchise out of them. The Brendan Fraser, The Mummy, was the most successful and first example of this. But there was 2004's Van Helsing, which was an attempt to create a franchise out of all of those monsters. Uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Wolfman are all in that movie. It was like a sort of neo-Gothic Avengers or something. That's right. And it was supposed <laughs> to create, you know, in each sequel, basically it was going to be like the 90s Batman movies where Van Helsing faces a different classic villain oh in God. each movie. But then with the release of The Avengers, that kickstarted every studio in Hollywood was looking at what they owned, what they were associated with, what can we build our Avengers around? And Universal made a number of failed attempts to, well, the most infamous one was The Dark Universe. Maybe you saw this picture that was released. What the fuck is The Dark Universe? Do I want to know? Yeah, yeah. The Dark Universe was going to be this like five year, 10 year plan to create like all these monster movies that would eventually climax in a big Avengers like monster rally. Oh. And they got as far as making one movie, which was The Mummy with Tom Cruise. And in that movie, Russell Crowe is in it as well as Dr. Jekyll. Future movies were going to include uh, Johnny Depp was going to be the Invisible Man. Other characters, I'm sure Frankenstein would have found his way it's, in there. It's crazy to think about, like, because so many of the things you're describing, like, exist, because so many things have been turned into these franchises like, it's crazy to think about, like, all the ones that, that like, were going to exist. And I'm not sure if it's, like, comforting to think that, okay, like, there are some limits. Like, some of these things fail. It's or, like political figures, too. Like, right. you well, can throw but, a lot of money at Michael Bloomberg. And, right, but, the, the, but then it's actually, ultimately, it's depressing because it's like, well, yeah, one of these guys goes down and there's always another one to take their place. It's like, yeah, Mayor Pete goes nowhere after, you know, Iowa, but there's just going to be another guy like that. And it's going to all come to the same thing. And then four years later, you're going to have to deal with a new Mayor Pete, possibly the same one. There's a tweet that every now and then I see get ironically retweeted that is from the official Dark Universe Twitter account, which I believe still exists. And it's this group shot of Tom Cruise, Russell Crowe, Johnny Depp, a couple other people who are going to be in these movies. And it says, prepare for the Dark Universe. And every now and then people bring that up like it's this lost satellite drifting in space. <laughs> this movie, Renfield, feels like the result of after the failure of The Mummy, Universal says, 
what do we do with our monsters? We can still do something with these monsters. Let's get let's get some people in here to pitch us some ideas. This movie is directed by Chris McKay, who previously directed the Lego Batman movie. He was also involved in Robot Chicken in some capacity. It was written by uh, Ryan Ridley, whose uh, first feature film credit this is. It feels like a kind of you know they go to they go to the pitch meeting and they say, well, what if you do a comedy Dracula? Yeah. What if it was from the perspective of Renfield opening scene? Renfield is in a support group for codependent relationships. Oh my God. And hey, how about this? This is going to be epic. What if Dracula was played by Nicholas frickin' Cage? <laughs> so look, uh, the experience... How to get burned. How to get burned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Killing me won't bring back your goddamn honey. <laughs> that Nicholas Cage. Yeah, so look, uh, my experience of watching this movie was that for the first few minutes before Will got there, I was like, okay, there's some black and white stuff. I kind of like this. It's sort of like, oh, yeah, it's kind of reminding you of, you know, classic Dracula. So that's kind of cool. It's self-aware. And, and you see Nicolas Cage really early, and it's like, I love Nicolas Cage, and he's bringing the same manic Nicolas Cage energy, the sort of... Very admirable work from Nicolas Cage in this movie, I, I think. I think so. Yeah. Honestly, admirable work from, from him and Look, Nicholas Holt, who's who plays Renfield, he's been in things I like. He's in Mad Max Fury Road. You know, we're going to Valhalla. Uh, Nicholas Holt has a career to build, like everyone else. Isn't he? Isn't he the kid? It wasn't he the kid in About a Boy with Hugh Grant? I think he was also in The Menu, which is a which is a film that I saw recently and quite enjoyed. So you know, nothing against this guy. Oh well, he also just signed up for the new Clint Eastwood film, and I I like <laughs> I like to imagine Clint that Clint Eastwood's watching some real. <laughs> I'm sure. One of his the assistants. Tape is this movie. One of his assistants probably said, "We'll set up a screening of Renfield for you, Mister <laughs> Mister Eastwood." Do you, th- do you think he liked it? He walked out after like five minutes. Um, but like, so look, the first few minutes of this, you know, I'm thinking, all right, it's got Nicolas Cage, it's got some black and white retro stuff. You know, maybe this isn't going to be too bad. And then uh, for the, about the next 15 minutes, I was thinking, like, look, this movie is not for me. But I was thinking about, well, if you're an earnest person who likes this movie. That's fine. And for the rest of the movie, I was thinking, I hate this with the fire of a thousand suns. I wish it didn't exist. It is sapping my life energy. It is so cloying. It is so grating. I hate the sort of like ironic distance it's trying to create from all the violence. I hate all the so that's a thing bullshit. I hate the style of dialogue. I hate all the soy banter. I hate the sort of John Wick derivative action sequences that all have a sort of, okay, that was epic style punchline. Um, um, I hate it. So that just happened. I hate it. There's a scene in this movie where Nicholas Holt, you know, having been turbocharged with his Dracula powers by eating bugs, he like flies across the courtyard of an apartment atrium and he kills some people. And somebody's looking from the window and says, he flies now. And I thought, oh, my God, he actually said he flies now. And look, we'll get to the plot in a second. But the other thing about it, just at the level of tone is that the ironic distance stuff isn't really even consistent. Like, the film is constantly sort of winking at you, and the characters are winking at you with this, like, with this kind of, you know, self-aware dialogue, you know, weed and banter, whatever you want to call it. That's all surrounding sort of the violent scenes, but then the real sort of heart of the movie is actually this, like, very treacly, weepy earnestness. 
And I find that these two particular tones often coexist in this type of movie. And it's one of the reasons why I hate it. Like, honestly, if the whole thing was actually just trying to be a comedy where there was all this kind of cartoon violence and it wouldn't and it didn't have this like weepy element, I actually don't think I would hate it in the same way. This is why it feels like a Pete Buttigieg movie, yes. because because yes. it, it doesn't believe in anything. Yes, it is simply it's smarm. We're seeing a business deal on screen that is like. <laughs> collecting a lot of things that the focus groups say work well and it doesn't believe in anything it doesn't believe in the violence it doesn't believe in you know the whole plot is built on you know self-help shit and self-actualization shit that it's half kidding about and then half serious about there's exactly two pieces of explicitly political content in the movie it's always like where's waldo when will and i see a movie like this together Will, uh, did you register either of them? Or perhaps there was another one that I missed, but I caught exactly two. And both of them are kind of triangulating uh, in very, like, Buttigiegian fashion. The first one is some stupid crack that Renfield makes about how when the movie is teaching you how the, you know, how its universe works, you learn, one of the things you learn is that Dracula's blood... Uh, his own blood like heals people so he'll like hurt Renfield he'll cut open his stomach and then he'll drip some of his own blood on the wound and it'll heal and then Renfield says well yeah it's this is like my health insurance plan oh and there's not even a deductible or something so that's kind of you know it's kind of like um, hey, so so that so that so that just happened health insurance that's a thing folks imagine if this was your freaking health insurance so that was one of them and the other one is some scene where the cop character who's the other main character she thinks Renfield shortly after they meet uh, he says something about oh I've been all over the world and she says ah uh, military background right. And he said, yes, I uh, fought in the Great War. And then she's kind of looking perplexed. And he says, oh, yeah, uh, the, 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 the Iraq War. Uh, not, 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 not the best war, not the greatest war. Three out of five stars or whatever. And so the movie, the movie is sort of recognizing like, okay, right, the Iraq War, that's a recent thing. People mostly don't seem to like that. So we're going to hedge on that, on that one. <laughs> God damn it. So those were the only two things I, uh, I like that that I detected. You don't want to take the movie to task for copaganda? Well, I was going to do that. And I actually think that, no, the movie makes itself, forgive the pun, I think the movie's bulletproof on that. It looks like, yeah, this is a, this is a movie are the good guys you know that Renfield's partnering with are cops who bant soily all the time but it turns out that actually uh, some of the cops are in with the bad guys and then later Renfield well this is why this is yeah. why it's a Democratic Party movie is because it has to acknowledge yes the system is corrupt but Renfield and the good Ren cop Ren Ren Renfield and, and Rebecca who's played by Aquafina yeah they, they end up like killing a whole bunch of cops it's movies like this that have conservatives you know thinking they need a Vlad the Impaler <laughs> to save them <laughs> so the the plot is, you know, Renfield, y'all know Renfield, you know, Dracula's little henchman. <laughs> Ever since, well, probably 1931, he and Dracula have been in this uh, codependent relationship. Renfield, he collects the bodies of innocents to feed to Dracula. I don't think I needed to explain the mythology of Dracula. You know what he's all about. Well, we just got know. it from the American conservative. Yeah, just a, yeah, drinks blood, gets younger. Stood up to globalists. When the Turk was lusting for Vienna, he was right there to say, you know, you can come to this side of the Danube, but no further. It's funny. I think if you asked Bram Stoker who the globalists were, he would say someone like Dracula, if you, if you, if you catch my drift. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see the National Review writers try to do something with that. So yeah, Renfield recognizes the dilemma that he's in. He's trying to get out of it. Dracula, uh, who's in a poor state when we begin the movie, he's plotting a comeback. 
He's loading up on blood so that he can take over the world. Renfield slowly realizes he doesn't want part of this. Yeah, Renfield decides he wants to use his powers for good. So he starts, you know, finding the people who are like the antagonists that come up in the support group that he's part of. You know, there's like a guy called Mitch, who's like the criminal boyfriend of a woman in the support group. And, you know, he goes to, I don't know, kill Mitch, bring him to Dracula, whatever. But then while he's there, Mitch and these other guys that are with him are tied up in organized crime with the Lobo crime family. Who are This movie all takes place in New Orleans, I guess, because it's like a gothic setting. Also, to be. also, Nick Cage himself has close ties with New Orleans. He, really? owns, he owns property there. He loves the town. <laughs> so uh, this is how they got him to be in the movie. He also He's like, I'm not traveling if you want me to be your soy Dracula. He's also <laughs> the reason why Bad Lieutenant... Port of Call New Orleans is shot in New Orleans. He, he insisted on that. He brought that to the project. He and Steven Seagal are New Orleans' favorite sons. Yeah, I mean, it would have been weird if a movie with that title was set in Philadelphia, so I'm glad that happened. But anyway, uh, Renfield kills the assassin, and then Teddy Lobo, who's the, I guess, scion of the, the Lobo family, he drives away, he's got the drugs, and then he tries to run a checkpoint where Rebecca is working as a cop. Uh, this is where we meet her. That's the Aquafina character. Yeah, and everybody around her is sort of telling her, like, you know, your job is to be a traffic cop. Like, stop taking the law. Stop, stop doing your job. Stop, like, trying to fight the bad guys or whatever. You can't take on, you know, the... We're doing corruption here. Come on. Yeah. So Teddy quickly gets released because, yeah, the uh, police department is corrupt. Uh, it's here we meet Rebecca's sister, uh, Kate, who works with the FBI. We learn that the two of them lost their father who was a cop uh, to this Lobo crime family some years ago. Rebecca keeps investigating. This leads her to a restaurant where it just so happens Renfield is gone because he's looking for, you know, more meat for Dracula. But then here he ends up uh, intervening before Re Rebecca gets her head blown off. The two of them kick some ass. This is the first, uh, you know, epic fight scene they have together. And it is very John Wick. Will leaned over to me and he said, it's amazing how much the influence of John Wick has spread into so many other movies you can see it in the posters for all these movies that come out where people are lit with like neon green and neon purple even just the the style of the action the way it's shot the sort of mix of gunfighting and martial arts that is so crucial to the john wick uh, series and which, the sort of in integration of extreme violence with you know dry comedy yeah i mean god i wish you've already seen it but god i wish we'd seen john wick 4 instead of <laughs> instead of this movie i love those movies they're so much fun Anyway, uh, Rebecca and Renfield kind of hit it off. This is where they have that banter about the Great War. Renfield is on his way, you know, through his support group to reclaiming his life. There's a scene where we see him in his little bachelor apartment, and it's been sort of remade with Ikea furniture. Yeah, he's and, got like, inspirational posters everywhere. Live, laugh, love shit, which the nerve of these filmmakers to sort of be like making jokes about that kind of aesthetic when they're the kinds of people who would be like, <laughs> Nicolas Cage, he's he's in insane you know <laughs> i'm not even sure they are making fun of it i don't know well no they want to have it they want to have it both ways is the thing i guess like, that's true like the yeah. joke of the movie is imagine renfield in a support <laughs> what group. if renfield went to therapy the fundamental tension at the heart of the movie really is men will literally work for dracula before going to therapy yeah but the, the movie <laughs> the movie wants to have it both ways uh 
because like the the support group they're they're like figures of fun the jargon they say i think we're supposed to laugh you know, at a little bit i think you're right i was going to disagree with you but i think you're i think you're absolutely right and i think you're actually articulating for me what i disliked about the movie and what i hate in general about this kind of sensibility that it's partaking in so much it's that it's yeah it's smarmy like it's not even honest if it could just be one of its constituent parts like if it if it could just be either the sort of you know epic action violence side and comedy without the weepiness or just some kind of you know earnest thing that actually took itself seriously I think either of those would work better. But that's never what you find in this type of movie. Instead, it's just this cacophonous clash. Just like you're sitting there in the theater, you got one of those monkeys in the seat behind you with symbols just fucking smashing them against your ears over and over again. That's what it was like watching this movie. A few words about Nicolas Cage. Uh, I, I, he's, he's insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, did you know he, he bought a, a castle? <laughs> His reputation has undergone a lot of ups and downs over the years. I don't think... <laughs> I think it's controversial or outre at this point to say he's actually really good. You know what? He's one of those guys. He's kind of so bad that it's good. Oh. <laughs> Yo, have you seen The Wicker Man? <laughs> Look, this is a digression, but I, I want to take it just because it would be nice to think about a movie I enjoyed for a second. But you've seen Mandy, right? I have seen Mandy. I mean, Mandy, I think, is a good example. It's a good That kind of movie is a good way to situate Nicolas Cage in terms of what he does well, because he can be a very good actor if he's used properly. And boy, is he ever used properly in that movie. That movie has this kind of exaggerated, hyper-real quality that actually sort of forces you to take it seriously. I remember accidentally getting very drunk and watching that with a few friends, like one of whom was uh, was Bronco, who of course has been, been on the show a few times. And I don't know, maybe it was just the alcohol, but uh, boy, did I have fun. Well, that famous scene in that movie where he's like, really drunk and he's in his underwear and he and he goes into the apartment and he starts screaming and he starts freaking out for like a minute or two it's like it's one of those scenes where i mean i know that he in interviews has talked about like channeling a lot of his own like real life pain it's into primal that scene scream therapy like like yeah I, I guess it is for him and it's one of those scenes that is kind of what he does best where it sort of dares you to laugh at it and it's not going for naturalism i have a quote here from you know an oft circulated quote by ethan hawk who cage heads will know co-starred with him in the film Lord of War. And in an interview that he gave with Newsweek, you know, five or six years ago, he said, I think Nicolas Cage is one of the few people in the history of acting who has really changed the form. I mean, he's a true original, one of the greatest actors ever. His confidence and madness and dedication. You take his top 10 performances and I'd put him against anybody. He goes on to say, Stanislavski came up with this idea of naturalism and pursuing life as it is, moving away from a more performance-oriented Shakespearean style of singing roles. Brando and Lee Strasberg and the group theater and all these people push it forward. Gene Hackman and De Niro and Meryl Streep, we've all been dutifully falling in line, except for Nick Cage. He's doing something else. And, you know, you look at a movie like Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, or Vampire's Kiss, uh, or Mandy, and he's not going for naturalism. He's going for something else. His big uh, comeback movie of a few years ago, Pig, that was a much quieter performance. He gave interviews where he said he was inspired by Japanese haiku in his performance. And that suggests the sort of range of influences and ideas that are informing his acting style. I mean, I've read a lot of his interviews over the years and he's spoken to being influenced by Brando, by Jerry Lewis, by Bruce Lee, you know. All of your influences. All the people I like. <laughs> and you know, the fact that, you know, you can get 
those three corners of the triangle all in one man. You know who else uses Nicolas Cage really well or used him once uh, really well is David Lynch in Wild at Heart. I mean, I think like anybody, Nicolas Cage is at his best when he's working with like really top tier directors. Yes. Uh, adaptation, Bringing Out the Dead. These are movies that use him really well. Um, I wonder how many people actually watch his Oscar winning performance in Leaving Las Vegas anymore because it's a movie that kind of looks like a chore to watch. And, you know, it's a downbeat movie about about an alcoholic but his performance in that movie there are times when you know another one of his influences is silent film acting he's very interested in people like i don't know conrad veidt and doing that kind of very mannered very very outre style that's again going against naturalism and the use of that in a movie like leaving las vegas which is otherwise a rather sober and downbeat oscar ready drama about an alcoholic you know speaks to the range of his talent and in the last couple of years, you know, after a decade of being in direct-to-video action movie hell because he's owed millions and millions and millions of dollars to the IRS. <laughs> really? You know, that is actually true. <laughs> and he's apparently just got out of debt. But there was 10 years where it's like, if you pay him $2 million, he'll make your movie. And he slowly paid off his debt making bad movies. And he's not brilliant in all of those films, but he is brilliant in some of them. You know, Mandy's an example. Joe, Pig are other examples. You know, there are certain movies from that wilderness period that show what he's capable of. And in his recent return to mainstream studio theatrically released films, this movie in last year's The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, where he played himself in, you know, a kind of comedy about the Nicolas Cage phenomenon. These movies are kind of 10 years late to the Reddit Nicolas Cage thing. You know, there are these attempts to be like, oh, oh, uh, we like Nicolas Cage now, right? Because he's... He's, he's, you know, Google's the name. He's the, he's the wacky guy. You know, he does, he does the screaming, you know, not the bees, you know, that, yeah, he's yeah. that, he's that guy. God, you know, that was going to be a digression, but now I feel like it's actually just informing my hatred of the movie even more. I mean, Nicolas Cage does his Nicolas Cage thing in the movie and it is kind of fun, but I feel like you're exactly right. It's like just the cynicism and kind of opportunism of this film and the fact that it is out of sync with the thing that it's trying to channel, that it's like discovering the Reddit Nicolas Cage years late and finding it as if this is like a discovery, as if people haven't been like immersed in this for years and haven't, you know, in many respects, moved on. You and I actually had a conversation recently where we were talking about an art exhibit in New York that sounded like an example of a very similar phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, the Brooklyn Museum is doing an exhibition now or has announced an exhibition called It's Pablomatic, curated by Hannah Gadsby, you know, who, as we know, Nanette, not a huge fan of Picasso, curated this exhibition. And they're actual Picassos. They're actual Picassos. This is a Picasso exhibition that has commentary sort of explaining, I mean, I hope it's a little more nuanced than this, but kind of explaining. Well, the title makes it sound why, like why, it's problematic. Why they're, why they're sexist, which, you know. We all know that Picasso uh, had his problematic elements. Uh, I think that's pretty well documented at this point. But I mean, he's Picasso is a lot of things, of course. In the online reception to the announcement of this exhibition, I didn't see a lot of approval. I saw a lot of people kind of dunking on it from all over the spectrum. There were the obvious like 
right-wing responses, the kind of like, oh, look at this woke bullshit, as if, as if they love Picasso all of a sudden. These people reading articles about Vlad the Impaler the, these people with they... These people with Greek statue <laughs> profile pictures who are like, we need to, we need to stop the degradation in art. Uh, oh, but we have to protect Picasso this one time <laughs> from this, you know, feminist comedian. But then I saw a lot of people like in both like the center and the center left and, you know, the left kind of making fun of this. And it's like, you know, Hannah Gadsby, you know, now here we are like five or six years later and uh, the Brooklyn Museum, these big institutions are... It, They're kind of lumbering. It's it takes like, them a while yeah, to... It's like steering the Queen Mary. <laughs> like, it takes like, a long time to turn. <laughs> yeah, and so now it's like, we got we got the thing that you, that you loved six years ago. <laughs> Hannah Gadsby talking about how Picasso is doing male gaze. You know, this actually all ties back very easily to Nicolas Cage, from which point we can go back to this fucking movie. But, I mean, something else that's like that is the Tiger King movie which like has that come out or is that being made where like Nicolas Cage is playing the Tiger King right? Mercifully we avoided that. Um, oh it didn't happen it didn't happen it was announced that Nicolas Cage you know we, mere weeks after the Tiger King Netflix series dropped it was announced that he would play Joe Exotic in a miniseries but somebody else started making a Tiger King miniseries because the story itself is in public domain right? right? Like anybody can make a movie about Joe Exotic he's a public figure and that one was rushed into production and so the Nicolas Cage one didn't happen and we are lucky that that didn't happen because like close your eyes and envision it we know what Nicolas Cage would have brought to that role it's not interesting well and I mean had it happened uh, and this is why I brought it up it would have just been exactly like you know these things we're discussing including whether it's this like Brooklyn Museum Picasso thing or uh, Renfield's use of Nicolas Cage where bring up a person or a kind of sensibility or like a way of thinking about a person and, and kind of like you know in the case of Nicolas Cage it's like a way of just like drawing on something from the past it had a particular kind of moment uh, but doing so you know years late such that it, it doesn't really work and in the case of Renfield yeah it just feels like look it's 2023 it's the reddit Nicolas Cage isn't doing it anymore let me explain I work for Dracula how Dracula some call me the dark one others the lord of death <laughs> I will no longer tolerate abuse <laughs> let me explain something to you I will unleash an army of death because you betrayed me. So to get back to the movie, um, look... Renfield and Aquafina, they team up to uh, stop the conspiracy and yeah, kill, so kill Dracula. We learn that the cops are are kind of they're they're in with the the Lobos family. There's a scene where Renfield uh, inadvertently leads Dracula to his support group and he kills them all. Don't worry, it's okay. At the end of the movie, he brings them back. Rebecca briefly thinks that Renfield's done all these murders, but then uh, she realizes that uh, he actually hasn't. There's a big battle at the end. Uh, they fight Teddy, who's been given the, you know, partial powers by Dracula. There's a bunch more violence. Uh, yeah, there's one scene where they kill a bunch of cops because, yeah, like we said, the cops are corrupt. All very John Wick, but yeah, with like fucking interspersed with Joss Whedon style dialogue. Awful. Uh, and at the end of the day, he brings back the people uh, from the support group. He gives them uh, Dracula's blood, brings back Rebecca's sister who gets murdered by Dracula. So Kate's back, the support group's back. And then at the end of the day, the message of the film is, 
you are valid. Be yourself. Be epic. Be awesome. But also not really, because like, isn't it isn't it funny that because it doesn't even take isn't it funny that seriously. Renfield is saying this? Renfield from Dracula. Yeah, the guy who killed all those people. You know, the, the, yeah. There's a line that Rebecca says to him right at the end, where he says, you know, I, I need to I need to pay for what I've done, and she says, I think people have a lot to learn from you. They can learn that it's never too late to be a hero. So there you go, folks. But you're right. You know what? You're right. What's so annoying about this is that the film does not even commit to its own treacly earnestness. Yeah, I mean, Renfield's self-actualization is both like this thing you're supposed to laugh at, but then it's also supposed to unironically be the emotional fulcrum of the movie, and you're supposed to be sort of invested in it on an emotional level. But the movie doesn't believe in it. It, it thinks of support groups and self-actualization and all the rhetoric surrounding them as like funny signifiers. It doesn't believe in its violence. It doesn't believe in Nicolas Cage. It doesn't believe in Dracula. It doesn't believe in anything. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was actually just rooting for Dracula in this movie. Like, I guess I found my own populist Dracula, you know, as described by that stupid article. I just wanted him to, like, figuratively impale all the all the epic sauce people, all the Renfields. Fuck him. Now watch this drive. You'll know that I am called the Count. Because I really love to count Sometimes I sit and count all day (laughs) But uh, sometimes I get carried away I count slowly, slowly, slowly getting faster Once I start in counting, it's very hard to stop Faster, faster, it is so exciting I could count forever, count until I drop One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two I love counting, whatever the amount One, two, three, four, hey, 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 hey One, two, three, four, one, two, that's a song of the count 